Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, Speaker McCarthy on a collision course amid a looming revolt within his own ranks, the pressure growing from his right flank to impeach President Biden, which could end up shutting down the government. Plus, Donald Trump wants the judge overseeing his federal election case out, now calling on her to recuse herself. But it is up to the judge to actually make that call, and we'll tell you how she just responded. And tonight, two beams of light remind us of what happened 22 years ago, the deadliest attack on U.S. soil. But as the nation remembers 9-11, families of the victims are still asking, why are they waiting for justice? I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, House lawmakers are set to return to Capitol Hill, and it is time to prepare for drama, potentially lots of it. There is a new feud that is brewing within Speaker Kevin McCarthy's Republican Party. His far right flank is demanding an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, or else he may not get their support on a lot of really important deals that could end up leaving the government shut down. Eight months after the hardliners relented and struck a deal to give him the speaker's gavel, McCarthy is now facing his biggest test yet. And those members had the ability to oust him from leadership with just one snap vote. McCarthy is also facing pressure from outside Capitol Hill from former President Donald Trump, who is now openly previewing what a second Trump term could look like. And it includes enacting revenge on his political opponents. But remember, it's a, it's a Democrat charging his opponent. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. That means that if I win and somebody wants to run against me, I call my attorney general. I say, listen, indict him. Well, he hasn't done anything wrong that we know. Of. I don't know. Indict him on income tax evasion. You'll figure it out. Let's get straight to the source tonight with South Carolina Republican Congressman and member of the House Oversight Committee, Congressman Nancy Mace, who is here with us in person. Thank you so much. Uh, do you support launching an impeachment inquiry into President Biden? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to say at this point. I think it, there's a difference between an impeachment vote and an inquiry. The inquiry mm-hmm. would give us another tool in the toolbox specifically to look at Joe Biden's bank records. Everyone's screaming about the evidence, where's the evidence? The bank records hold all of the evidence. And if the American people, Caitlin, if you could see the suspicious activity reports that I have seen on the Biden family, you would too would probably support an impeachment inquiry just as a tool to get more information on on specifically the bank information, bank records of Joe Biden and his family members. That's an important tool in our toolbox. So do you, does that mean you do support an I'll support inquiry? an impeachment inquiry. Impeachment vote is totally separate, but uh, but an inquiry I would support at this juncture. And why would you support that? Because there are you're on one of the committees mm-hmm. that is investigating this. There's three committees investigating yeah. all of this, and there's a special counsel that is uh, investigating 
investigating Hunter Biden, has been investigating him for five years now. So mm-hmm. why why does there need to be an impeachment inquiry if there's already several My, ongoing investigations? Yeah, great question. My understanding is it will give us access to Joe Biden's bank records. And if we can connect the dots and show the American people where the bribery allegations stand, where the money laundering stands, showing through vis-a-vis the bank records, that is a way to do that. If you could see what I have seen, then we can't share the SARS reports because they're confidential and that would be against the law. So we have to prove it via other means, via the bank records, for example. If that gets us Joe Biden's bank records, then I'm going to support it because everyone should know what actually happened, what kind of businesses were involved, how Joe Biden was involved, the kind of money that was involved in these schemes is astounding. You would be shocked. It would You would blush, Caitlin, if you knew, if you'd so seen I what I had seen. You've said this before, mm-hmm. and you, we spoke with you after you went to the Treasury Department yeah. and looked at those reports. But, I mean, you, as a member of Congress, do have access to those reports. You went and we saw do. them yourself. So uh, I think a lot of people ask, you know, you've been home for six weeks. There's been mm-hmm. no new evidence that's been uncovered or brought forward. So what is the basis now for having Well, I think, I mean— we, there are more people to subpoena, whether that's Hunter Biden, whether that's the bookkeeper, whether that's getting Shokin in to testify. There are a lot of witnesses out there that saw things that were part of meetings that Joe Biden was a part of, that, that were part of the transactions, that were potentially part of the bribery scheme. I mean, all that evidence the American people should be able to have and see. The American but so people far, can't, none of it has risen well, to that. Well, the American people can't see the suspicious activity reports. Those are confidential documents. So any piece of evidence, right or wrong, I I want the American people to see all of it, whether it backs us up or or does not. The people deserve the truth and nothing but, but the isn't truth. it supposed to be the evidence that leads you to pursue impeachment and impeachment inquiry? Well, that's what the inquiry is for. Is but there's to already get more three investigations. I think that's right. where people are confused because it's not like but there's we don't no have Joe. We happening. don't have Joe Biden's bank records yet. And so one way to do that, my understanding, would be through an impeachment inquiry. So if that's what get us gets us those bank records, then I'm going to support it. If, I'm just saying, if you could see what I have seen, and I believe you should, you deserve to see that. But have that. you seen direct evidence for, I, I related to seen, President Biden? Because that's what we have not heard. Well, we have to connect the, the dots, and that has to be through the bank records. If his bank records show nothing, the American people should know that, too. And you think it's worth launching that 100%. to get to that? I do. I do. Uh, if that's what gets us the bank records, that's what we should do. the other point of confusion here is that mm-hmm. all of this is being tied to funding the government. Separate and I, things. I don't, well, not for <laughs> yeah, members of yeah. your own party, because Marjorie Taylor Greene says she won't vote to fund the government unless that House impeachment inquiry is passed. There are a lot of Republicans. You said you would support it and you'd vote for it. I'm not voting to fund the government because Republicans and Democrats have spent too much. Like, I think holding hostage an impeachment inquiry is wrong. When you look at what we just did three months ago on the debt ceiling, Republicans and Democrats alike just added $18.8 trillion to the debt. That is the reason why all of us should be voting against these massive spending measures. But it's, it's, it's holding the government hostage for the impeachment inquiry, right? Yeah, yeah. no, that, that in a sense, that would. That's but what she's saying she would yeah, be doing. I'm voting against the, the ex- excess spending because of the out-of-control spending. I'm not going to hold the impeachment inquiry hostage, is what I'm saying is my difference. I mean, her, her comment on it was, our conference needs to stop capitulating to the left, members that are in blue districts. That's not what donor, donors are donating money for. And we need to stop allowing Biden district Republicans to hold up our agenda. But isn't the concern that By, making yeah. moderates vote for this would put them at risk? Oh, 100%. It puts them at risk. But also Biden district Republicans are the reason that Republicans are in the majority, have the slim majority that we have today. And if we want to keep that majority, we have to keep those folks 
in their seats. And so you don't do that by making um, Republicans in moderate districts walk the plank on abortion, walk the plank on women's issues, walk the plank on birth control, walk the, pa- the plank on an impeachment vote. Like those are all the reasons why we will lose next year if we continue down that path. But then why have the impeachment inquiry if it's going to put your majority at risk? An inquiry is an investigative tool. It's different from an impeachment. On the impeachment side, you know, the House would investigate. The Senate would essentially hold a trial. But no, I mean, the Senate's not going to hold a trial. There's not going to be 60 votes. It's not happening. It is, uh, it's a, it's window addressing on impeachment. But an inquiry is an investigative tool. That's the difference between an impeachment vote and an inquiry. But you, you're talking about the subpoena power. I mean, you have that now. I don't think we've issued enough subpoenas. But isn't that a leadership problem? Shouldn't you be talking to the chair of your committee about that? I talk to our I talk to our leadership and our committee all the time, and they're being uh, judicious in how they do it. They're being deliberate. I, I want it now, but there is a deliberative process. I think that they are, are are going about it at the right pace, at the right speed. But it takes time. It takes money. You can't go and just ask a foreign country for foreign bank records and, and, and say they're going to show up overnight. That's not how it happens. It does take time. It does take money. It does take resources. But if you pursue the impeachment inquiry, do you really think that House Republicans would not pursue full impeachment, an impeachment vote? I, it should depend on the evidence. As you just mentioned earlier, it should depend on the evidence. The evidence should guide us. The facts should guide us on whether or not we have an impeachment vote. Could you actually get an impeachment inquiry vote passed? Is there enough Republicans? I don't. I haven't whipped the vote. I don't know. Um, we'll know more. We're back in session this week, and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll know more when we're on the ground. A lot of this has been tied to, to Speaker Kevin McCarthy. There are increasing demands on him to pursue this. He has not said yet whether or not, yes, he will or whether he won't. If his leadership is called into question potentially as soon as this week, do you still support him as the leader? I do support him as the leader. I I don't know who would be waiting in the wings for that job. We have a very diverse party, whether you are a BAGA, whether you are a libertarian, whether you are a moderate or a centrist like myself. We have a diversity of opinions. He's been able to bring those blocks together. We call them the five families. He's been able to bring those families together. I typically am an island of one. I I don't mind operating that way, but I also get a chance to have a meeting and, and speak to him and speak to leadership and tell them, you know, where I stand as well. And so I appreciate the opportunity to be able to have those conversations, to be able to negotiate votes, to be able to negotiate legislation with him. He's been very open to all the voices, and I hope that that will continue. Um, You've had a very storied history with the former president, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. He said something on Friday night at a rally that I want you to listen to. I win, and somebody wants to run against me. I call my attorney general. I say, listen, indict him. Well, he hasn't done anything wrong that we know. I don't know. Indict him on income tax evasion. You'll figure it out. That's what he was saying he would do if he wins a second term. I mean, but isn't that the definition of weaponization of federal government? I can't tell by the tone if he's joking or if he's serious. But, but isn't that the whole Trump? I I don't know. So, But I will say that setting the precedent of arresting your number one political enemy is a poor precedent to set. We don't want any president, current or future, to say, well, someone did it to me, they arrested me when I was running for president, I'm gonna do the same to them. We don't want the tit for tat. All evidence, all due process should follow the facts rather than guide you know, a, an indictment or an arrest prematurely. I wish that they had waited. I think uh, several of the indictments aren't really worth the paper that they're printed on. Um, and I wish that they had waited until after the presidential primary because we don't want to set that kind of precedent in the future now or in the future at all to but give somebody else the power to do that. These? I mean, there, 
You can't just get a subpoena and have this. You can still run for president. There's evidence that these prosecutors have used to get subpoenas to have these indictments. That are, yeah. I mean, it, obviously, it'll be decided in a court of law, but it's not like there's no basis. He's saying he could just manufacture whatever against someone who's running against him and have his attorney general it'll, pursue it. It'll is be that appropriate? It'll be decided in a court of law, but also but is decided- it appropriate for the Republican frontrunner, the party of law and order, to say, hey, I'm going to make up these charges about someone who's running against me if I if I am in president again? It'll also be decided in the court of public opinion. It'll be decided at the ballot in the Republican primary, whether or not people think you should run for president, for example. All of that, the public gets to decide when they go into the ballot box and they press a lever to vote for president. But what's your opinion on his comment there? I can't tell if he's joking or if he's serious. Like, sometimes it's a joke, sometimes he's serious. I don't know. I haven't spoken to him about it directly, so I, I don't know the, the tone with which he was going forth. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I do know that, that arresting your political opponents during a presidential primary is not the precedent that either party should want to set now or in the future. And I think that should, that should be bipartisan. I think everyone should be able to agree on that. Yeah. It's certainly not the first time he's made those comments. Congressman Nancy Mace, you've got a busy week ahead of you. Thank, Thank you for you. joining us here today. Thank you. Up next, speaking of Donald Trump, he has just taken a legal risky move following the or asking to formally move to oust the judge that is overseeing his federal election case in Washington. She has just responded tonight. Also, New Mexico's governor suspending the right to publicly carry firearms in her state's largest city. Critics say it is unconstitutional, including a sheriff who has vowed to defy that order and will join us tonight. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. In one of his most dramatic legal moves yet, tonight Donald Trump is pushing to remove federal judge Tanya Chutkin from presiding over his election subversion case in Washington. Days after the special counsel, Jack Smith, filed a motion saying that Trump's continued, everyday essentially, statements could potentially taint the jury pool there, Trump is now attempting to use a similar argument about the veteran judge's statements of her own. The problem is many legal experts say that getting her to recuse herself is a long shot at best. The threshold for recusal is not only very high, her statements have actually been very similar to the ones that other federal judges who have also sentenced January 6th defendants have made, many of them who have blamed Trump himself for their actions that day. Tonight, now let's bring in retired California Superior Court Judge LaDoris hazard Cortell. Judge, thank you so much for being here. Obviously, Judge Chutkin decides if Judge Chutkin will recuse herself here. What do you think is the likelihood of that happening? Well, Caitlin, uh, when you don't have the law, uh, you argue the facts. And when you don't have the facts, you argue the law. 
And if you have neither the facts nor the law on your side, you pound the table and yell like hell. And that's what has happened here. This is yelling like hell to get Judge Chatkin off of this case. Uh, and they claim it's because she's not impartial. Of course, the, what they're relying on is the word she has used in sentencing those who have been convicted by juries in involvement in the insurrection. So uh, what they're really afraid of and what this, this recusal motion or disqualification motion is all about, they don't want Judge Chatkin on this case, not because they believe that she won't be fair. Uh, the trial judge just makes rulings on motions. It is the jury that will decide whether or not Donald Trump should be convicted. What they're worried about is he's, if he's convicted, that she will be the sentencing judge. And they've seen how she has responded to those who have been convicted of their involvement. So in this instance, this disqualification or recusal is discretionary. So it's up to her to think about it, to look at the reasons they're raising, and then to decide, can she be fair in making her rulings? Can she be objective? In my view, given her history already in this case and other cases, she can absolutely be fair in this case. So they're really grasping for straws. You know, they have a nine-page memorandum of cases they've cited to try to get rid of her. Not one of those cases involves one where a judge in different cases sentenced people and explained why she sentenced them that way and then used the language used in that case in a completely different one, in this case with Trump, to show that she was impartial, she is not impartial. Uh, that's, there's no case like that. And that would just chill uh, judges' speech when they are required by law. It's part of their job to state on the record their reasons for the sentences that they impose. They want her off because he's really worried, if he's convicted by a jury, that she is going to be the one to sentence him. Yeah, so, I mean, they're looking at her, her comments. And one of the one of her quotes that they cite in the reason for this that John Lara cites is uh, a statement she made in a 2022 sentencing. It was a January 6th defendant. She said, quote, the people who mobbed the Capitol that day were there in fealty and loyalty to one man, not to the Constitution, of which most of the people who come before me seem woefully ignorant, not to the ideals of this country and not to the principles of democracy. It's a blind loyalty to one person who, by the way, remains free to this day. Uh, do you see anything that is out of bounds in that statement that, that would make the argument that, that she is impartial? Okay. So she made the statement at the sentencing hearing. And what she said was based on facts that came out of the hearing, that came out of the trial, that they had allegiance to this one person. We now know it's, we know it's Donald Trump. And so she is saying these are the facts that came out during this trial. She then, in response to that, is saying this is why I'm imposing this sentence. And yes, this person, and it's facts, has not been charged. So there is nothing out of the ordinary. Judges do this all the time in terms of, explaining, and you're required to, explaining on the record why you're imposing a sentence, particularly if the imposition of a sentence is harsher than one perhaps given to others. Judges are required to explain it. That's what she did, and she will be fair in making rulings in the trial of Donald Trump. The issue will become, of course, if he's convicted, what sentence she will impose. So uh, it is my belief that she will turn down this request. It's up to her. It is discretionary. And if she believes she can be impartial, then she will continue to preside over this case. Yeah. And she has given harsher sentences than even what prosecutors recommended for a lot of the January 6th defendants. Former Judge LaDoris Cordell, thank you for your time tonight.
Sure. It has been 22 years, and America tonight is marking 9-11 with a tribute in light beaming through the sky. For 22 years, 9-11 families are still without so many answers. My next guest lost her sister in the North Tower that day. She is still fighting for that justice, and she'll speak to us coming up. Tonight, two powerful beams are lighting up the New York City skyline as the nation is marking 22 years since the terror attacks of September 11, 2001. Memorials in New York City, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and the Pentagon all paid tribute to the nearly 3,000 people that have been killed. President Biden commemorated the anniversary with service members and first responders in Alaska Alaska as he made his way back from the G20 summit. But tonight, Terry K. Rockefeller, who lost her sister Laura in the North Tower that day, writes that, quote, for 9-11 families, it's been 22 years without answers, justice, or accountability. And Terry joins me now. Terry, thank you so much for being here on a night like this, on a day like this, where obviously there's always a lot of reflection. You know, there has been still no trial for the five defendants who are being held at Guantanamo on charges of aiding the hijackers. I wonder tonight when you're thinking on this, what would justice look like for you? Caitlin, first of all, thank you for um, having me on the show. And I just want to say my heart goes out to all the other families who are in the same position I am. You know, your question is a really important one because the fact is 9-11 family members have been failed by four successive administrations from Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden. We have not been able to carry out a trial. And I personally have invested a lot of energy in watching not what people may imagine is a trial, but watching the military commissions at Guantanamo. After more than 11 years of pretrial hearings, with no date for a trial to actually begin anywhere in sight. I believe we have to call an end to it and take guilty pleas from the defendants and learn what we can from them in stipulations of fact about what they did. It's less than I ever would have expected from my country, but that's all I think we can get at this moment. I mean, I can tell that it's a hard position for you. I mean, this is something that a lot of the families, you know, some want to see it go to trial. They want to see death penalties potentially. But some, like you, feel that a, a, penal, or a, a plea would be maybe be, I mean, essentially more something that is actually tangible. And I mean, as you know, but just It's sort of, more realistic, Caitlin. It's more realistic. Because... The fact that the five defendants were tortured by the CIA has totally stalled proceedings at Guantanamo. There are endless debates over what evidence can be introduced. And very, very slowly, over years and years, the prosecution is losing Uh, the evidence they need to try this case. It's important for family members and for the entire American public to know that it was the prosecution that sought plea agreements because they believed it could deliver us judicial finality 
and security that the verdicts would not be appealed. And we can get information. Terry, as you're just thinking about this, I mean, it's such a complicated thing. And I know, I mean, every day it's something you think about. I mean, it's been 22 years to the day since you lost your sister. How are you doing? I am extraordinarily sad today. The weeks around the anniversary um, are always very difficult, but I have really been gratified over the years to become engaged with activists, other family members, and also legal experts and human rights activists who look at Guantanamo and realize what an incredible betrayal of family members it was, that the men were sent to be tried in a military commission rather than use the best courts we had available to us, our federal court system. I know it's been such a, a struggle for you and Terry K. Rockefeller. I just am grateful that you joined us tonight and on, on this day, especially, and of course, we're thinking of you, we're thinking of your family, we're thinking of all the families, not just on this night, but, but every night. Thank you so much, and um, there will be justice, and there will be judicial finality eventually. At least I will keep working for that. We know you will. Thank you, Terry. Meanwhile, tonight also we are tracking this international story. One of the world's most dangerous dictators is on the move. Kim Jong-un chugging along, making his way to see global outcasts, another one, fellow Vladimir Putin on that non-express train, we are told. What is expected to happen when Kim Jong-un gets off that train next? The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, as we speak, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un is on a heavily fortified train making a very slow trek toward Russia and a summit of global pariahs with President Vladimir Putin. It is Kim's first time actually leaving the country since the pandemic, or if you're him or Putin, it is a meeting for a good reason, they believe. Russia desperately needs to replenish its war arsenal after a year and a half of bombing Ukraine. In return, North Korea desperately needs food and energy supplies and also advanced weapons technology. Putin plans to roll out the red carpet for this visit as both strongmen are trying to project a sign of strength. As global critics say, it's really an act of desperation. Either way, for much of the world, it is a nightmare alliance in the making. Here with us to discuss that and their bipartisan efforts to combat China are Democratic Congressman Rajan Krishnamurthy of Illinois and Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, who is also the ranking member and chairman, respectively, of the House Committee 
on the Chinese Communist Party. A lot to discuss on China, but first let's talk about the summit that is happening. I mean, is there anything that the United States can do besides, you know, the White House issuing these warnings to stop what appears to be this arms deal in the making? Well, I think the first thing is just recognize the basic re- geopolitical reality, which is that increasingly we have an axis of authoritarian countries arrayed against our interests, not just the United States, but all of our allies and partners. Obviously, China is the dominant partner. Uh, Vladimir Putin is a junior partner, but it includes North Korea. It includes Iran. It includes countries like Venezuela. And so we don't have the luxury of sort of ignoring certain parts of the world. We need to have a global strategy. We need to be engaged. We need to be in the business of recruiting our own allies and partners because we actually have the luxury of having capable, competent allies and partners and network of alliances that we've built painstakingly over the last few decades. That's really a unique source of strength we have relative to China. Yeah, but we see how they are obviously being pushed closer and closer together, growing closer. I mean, how worried are you about the Putin and Kim alliance that we're seeing? I'm I'm concerned. But at the same time, uh, as you mentioned before, I think it is a sign of desperation on the part of Putin. Um, He knows that things aren't going as well as he'd like in Ukraine. And we've seen some recent... uh, momentum, maybe some breakthroughs through the defensive lines of the Russians. And at the same time, you know, the Koreans, North Koreans are very desperate. They need food. They need energy. Um, But what they're going to supply aren't necessarily the best artillery shells in the world. You know, published reports show that a lot of this stuff doesn't even reach its intended targets, which tells me that, um, you know, both sides are desperate. And so Although we want to treat this appropriately, and he is breaking sanctions by potentially selling arms to Russia, um, I think that we uh, we don't want to overreact either. But will there be consequences for, for breaking those sanctions? I mean, or just seeing that this is this desperate act? I think there should be, um, certainly. We can do a better job of enforcing our existing sanctions regime, potentially expanding it where necessary. One thing we've contemplated for years, which should be on the table, and we're talking about North Korea, Russia, but traditionally... Um, uh, North Korea gets an economic lifeline from China and secondary sanctions on Chinese banks and businesses that abet the North Korean regime's uh, destabilizing behavior, I think, should be on the table going forward. Obviously, China borders both Russia and North Korea. He's also President Xi has also been forging ties with both of these countries. He has not yet, based on what we know and tell me if that's different, uh, supplied arms to to Russia to use in Ukraine. What do you think he makes of what is what we're watching play out with this slow train moving there? I think he probably has some concerns as well. He wants to know probably what is being given in return for the arms that are being supplied to Russia. Because remember, the North Koreans want certain nuclear technology as well as satellite technology, which the Chinese have been very reluctant to provide to them. And I presume that they wouldn't want the Russians to provide that either to the North Koreans. So I think he'll be watching that carefully. Um, So far, the Chinese themselves have not supplied lethal aid Mm -hmm. to the conflict. Um, But we want to watch that very, very carefully as well. Yeah. And I should note the reason that the both of you are here is you are here in New York meeting with financial leaders, kind of working through these so-called war games on the risks of what you China invading Taiwan, what that could look like. I mean, what are you what's your message to them? What are you saying to them? Uh, Well, to connect it to our previous topic, uh, Korea, obviously in China, there's a cult of the Korean War that's popped up recently. The highest grossing Chinese movie of all time is a is a movie about the Korean War. And I think it's part of a preparation by Xi Jinping to prepare his country for conflict with the West. So what we need to be signaling in no uncertain terms is that an attempted PLA invasion of Taiwan, A, would fail, and B, would be, would be met with a united response uh, from the West. Uh, the consequences of taking such a destabilizing action, the consequences of undermining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait would be catastrophic for Xi Jinping. Um, and that's another lesson of Ukraine, right? Uh, Obviously, deterrence initially failed in Ukraine. The cost has been enormous. We need to ensure that 
Taiwan's future doesn't become Ukraine's present by doing things like arming uh, Taiwan with harpoon missiles, replenishing our stockpiles of long-range precision fires, and doing what we tried to interrogate earlier today, which is what are the financial and economic levers we can uh, pull now in order to put ourselves in a more advantageous position, again, with the overall focus of deterring a war with China, which would be catastrophic. China has been having a ton of economic issues back at home. And President Biden, when he was just wrapping up his trip in Vietnam, he was asked if he thought that that would deter them uh, from or make it more likely that they would move on on Taiwan. He said no. Is that something you is that an assessment you agree with? Or do you think it could make someone who is very risk averse less risk averse? Potentially. I mean, if Xi Jinping thought his economic back was against the wall and he didn't think that he could repair what's happening in China, which is a dismal economic situation, it's quite possible he could resort to the nationalism card. Mm. And that would be very dangerous, as you know. The, the, it would be a horrible day for the world were an open conflict to happen over Taiwan. And so Mike is right that we have to do everything we can to deter that from happening. At the same time, we need to work with our partners and friends and allies in the region to weave an economic partnership as well that um, makes it uh, more likely that China will actually play by the rules of the road economically and not just militarily. Because as, we, as you know, they engage in dumping, cyber theft, intellectual property, theft, and other types of moves that really hurt our economy. The last point is, unfortunately, a lot of American dollars through investments in, in Chinese companies actually fuel hum, crackdown on human rights in China, as well as um, a buildup of the PLA. You know, the Federal Thrift Savings Plan, which Mike and I are a member of, actually has index funds in it that um, are invested in companies that provide surveillance equipment for the Uyghur genocide, um, also uh, uh, aircraft engines and parts. And when you bring that up with those industry leaders, what do they say? Well, basically they say, first of all, uh, it's, it's in our fiduciary duty to actually be investing in these things, which is completely ridiculous. I don't think it's in the best interest of federal employees to be investing in these types of companies. Um, and then secondly, it's up to us in Congress also to legislate to make sure this doesn't happen. So this is one of the reasons why we're here to talk about this, to explore what needs to be done and to prevent us from fueling or funding, you know, the very things that we don't want to have happen in China. Is that message breaking through? I What's think, the response been? I think so. I, I think even uh, the, you know, asset managers or bankers on Wall Street who have a more dovish position on China than I do or we do, recognize they could live with a more uh, aggressive set of restrictions so long as there was predictability, so long as we legislated a solution that transcended this administration or the next. So we're not ping-ponging back and forth between different executive orders or different regulation. And if there was an appropriate transition period, a glide path to the new rules, I think even people who don't have the, the view of the CCP threat that we do could live with that reality, which is why it's up to us to step up and legislate a solution. And the final thing I'd say is, the reasonable people can disagree about where to draw the line for economic engagement with China. I don't think anyone can defend the idea that we should be allowing American retirees to invest in Chinese military companies that are building things designed to kill Americans in a future conflict. Congressman, it's an important bipartisan issue, clearly, to both of you. So thank you both for joining me on set tonight. Thank, thank you, Kayla. 
Up next, a Second Amendment showdown is happening in New Mexico tonight. There is major backlash after the governor there suspended both open and concealed carry in response to gun violence for the next 30 days. Many, as you can see here, openly defying that order, including our next guest, a sheriff who says he will not enforce this new executive order. That's ahead. The images that you are seeing here are of armed protesters in the streets of Albuquerque this weekend. Noteworthy for what you don't see, anyone being arrested here, because technically they are in violation of a new executive order. The governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, has declared a public health emergency and banned open and concealed firearms in public spaces, which, of course, this certainly is in parks and whatnot, throughout the state's most populous county for the next 30 days. Then after that, she says she will reevaluate. A pair of gun rights groups are suing in response to that executive order because they argue that it violates the Second Amendment. I'm joined now by our Bernalillo County Sheriff, John Allen. Sheriff, thank you so much for being here. You say that you are not going to enforce this ban on concealed carry and open carry. Why not? It's uh, unconstitutional. It's infringing on people's Second Amendment rights. And have you heard from the governor? I mean, you came out and issued this statement essentially saying you still wanted to work with her. But have you heard from her since since you said that you were not going to enforce this new executive order? No, I have not. But before this uh, announcement was even made, we found out, you know, minutes to about max of 30 minutes before she made the announcement. And she knew um, that it was probably going to be on her because none of the law enforcement leaders agreed with her. Uh, we knew there was a bunch of issues. And for me as a Bernalillo County Sheriff, very concerned about just not civil liability for our deputies, uh, but so many other things to focus on. And uh, a little frustrated that this overshadowed all the great conversations that we had. Are you frustrated? I mean, is your sense of why you say it's unconstitutional? I mean, what is the direction to the deputies? Is it that they would not be able to enforce it, you think? Or what is the, the argument there? Right there, they won't enforce it. It's unconstitutional. It's not even really an argument in terms of where we would be at in civil court. We have so much violent crime here in Bernalillo County that my deputies would be stuck in civil litigation, if not myself. And I have a bunch of other issues of violent crime. I have gun violence here. We have homicides, so many other issues to to just deal with a health order. There were immediately court challenges to this, including from the National Association for Gun Rights, Gun Owners for Americans. Why not wait and let the courts weigh in before deciding whether or not you can enforce it? Because everybody sees what goes on immediately. But here in a couple of months or a year down the road, we're the ones stuck in court and we're the ones getting sued over all of these infringement of uh, rights and all these other court battles when I could be focusing so much more on crime. You just referenced what's happening in your city. And that was also obviously what the governor referenced as well. She said she was signing this because of several recent shootings of kids, including an 11-year-old boy who was who was shot outside of a minor league baseball stadium. Uh, if this is unconstitutional or difficult to carry out, which is your argument, what do you think is the solution here for gun violence, for public safety? What will stop this from happening? You know, the solution is a collaboration with just the city of Albuquerque and New Mexico State Police, federal entities also like the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I just called every town uh, today. Uh, they always support me. And like I said, the gun violence that we're dealing with, the initiatives we're doing already at the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office, uh, changing some of the culture that wasn't here previous uh, before I took the seat, such as uh, ERPO. Uh, that's one way that we can battle gun violence. And also all the juvenile crime that we're seeing with firearms. 11 to 18. And as soon as I had the press conference 
uh, today to announce to our deputies and the public what we would be doing, what we would not be doing. Uh, we had very robust conversations on how to intervene in gun violence, specifically our teens, because that's a huge rise that we see here in Bernalillo County. Some people listening and watching tonight who maybe live there or live in another city that has been racked with gun violence, they may hear that and say, well, collaboration doesn't sound like that is going to be, you know, what stops our, our children from getting shot. What would you say to them? Uh, what stops the children is I understand the sentiment. And a lot of people um, don't understand what we see as law enforcement and and seeing that our children are being hurt and adults, just our community. I had a friend that called me and her his daughter wanted a bulletproof backpack and a taser. Everyone's worried. I'm trying to look at solutions to address the gun violence directly and not be overshadowed by a court order that is not going to be enforceable. I'm telling you that right now. It's going to waste our time. I want to make sure that we have real solutions to battle the gun violence. Everybody talks about battling gun violence, but they actually don't do anything or even look at violent intervention programs from youth to adults. And that's something that I am very dedicated on focusing on. It sounds like you think the governor should rescind her order. Is that right? You know, that's up to her. Everyone keeps asking me these questions. I'm not going to answer the questions for the governor. Her and I have conversations. Uh, we disagreed uh, on this particular order. Um, she made it very clear during her press conference that she knows that law enforcement leaders would not support her in this area. And this decision was solely on her. I wanted to inform and make sure that my constituents, just not in Bernalillo County, uh, but the state of New Mexico, that we're trying as hard as we can to make a dent in gun violence. We're already behind the power curve. Our laws are already behind. Uh, we don't have strict enough penalties for juveniles with firearms or even intervention programs. Uh, we're behind. So that's something that I want to focus on. Sheriff John Allen, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much. And just in tonight, a story that we are tracking. The star quarterback Aaron Rodgers has been injured during his debut game with the New York Jets. What happened? Why is he off the field so quickly? That's next. Just in tonight, during Aaron Rodgers' debut as a New York Jet, the star quarterback was injured minutes after taking the field against the Buffalo Bills and has left the game with an ankle injury on just his fourth play of the night after he was sacked by Bills edge rusher Leonard Floyd. We have now just learned that Rodgers is out for the remainder of the game with this injury. The future Hall of Famer had jogged into MetLife Stadium on this 9-11 anniversary to thunderous applause as he carried an American flag in his hand. Of course, he was traded to the Jets after spending 18 seasons with the Green Bay Packers, and we are wishing him all the best tonight. Another story that we have also been tracking all day, it has been 12 days, and police tonight are still looking for the convicted murderer who broke out of a Pennsylvania prison. And now, Danilo Cavalcante looks a lot different than he did initially, adding another wrinkle to the challenging search efforts that were already underway. That photo on the right was shot on Saturday night, and it shows he has shaved his beard and obviously looks quite different than in his mugshot. Police also say that Cavalcante has stolen a van. He was spotted more than 20 miles from the initial search area. Tonight, police say that Cavalcante, who crab-walked out of prison, is considered extremely dangerous as he's still missing. While they don't have a defined search area, authorities say they are confident that he is still in Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll keep you updated on that important story tonight. Seen in prime time with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.